0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and go to the book of James. It's been a wonderful time of study in the book of James, a unique kind of epistle just in light of James and his personality and his style of writing and his perspective, a little different than the Apostle Paul. It's been so much in Paul, so it's kind of neat, uh, refreshing, a little bit of a change to spend some time with James. We are now in chapter 3, and last week we actually looked at verses 1 and 2, where James transitions into a new topic. point of emphasis that he felt he had to address among uh, the believers in the churches that had been established uh, 15 years now and running. And he's getting word from all these churches around of their problems, but also their strengths. And this epistle primarily deals uh, with some things they need to work on. And that is walking their talk. And so he writes this epistle of action. It's a call to action that uh, those who profess to know Jesus Christ should live accordingly. And that's why this epistle is ramped up with a peculiar amount of imperatives or commands in it for such a short letter that we have in five chapters. So it's a it's do, do, do. And he's holding Christians, professing Christians accountable to be living for Christ. And he doesn't let us rest because he goes from one imperative to the next, where we get a jolt of accountability uh, from James. If you are a Christian, God does expect us uh, to live a certain way, absolutely, as we represent Christ in the world. So he introduces the new topic in chapter 3, verses 1 all the way to verse 12. And primarily, the big theme there is how we use our mouth, uh, our words, or our tongue. Very important. Uh, as a matter of fact, we talk more than we do anything else by way of actions. Um So he's going to continue on with this theme of the tongue. Uh, The first thing regarding the issue of the tongue and our words and how we use our mouth was the caution and exhortation he gave to those in the church who desired to be teachers in the church formally of Scripture, whether on a pastoral level or any other level, whether it's Bible study, Sunday school, or even just uh, informally in and out among the believers uh, speaking as an authority for God on Scripture. And he cautioned Christians that... uh, Not very many people should formally be doing that because there's great accountability that comes with professing to be a representative teacher of God's word. So that was verse one and two. And now he's going to transition from verses three to twelve. More generally and generically in a way that applies more specifically to all of us. And that's how do we use our tongue, guard our tongue, watch our words? And are we good stewards of our words before God in how we speak on all occasions? Verses 3 to 12. That's where we're headed next. But before I get to verses 3 through 12, today I just wanted to highlight part of verse 2. Made a reference to it last week, read it last week, but wasn't able to camp out on it. Uh, This epistle, I said, is an epistle of imperatives or commands. Those are his main point of emphasis. But here, at the beginning of verse 2, I wanted to highlight, not an imperative, but just this indicative statement that James makes almost as a parenthetical side note that he assumes that his readers already know to be true. And they were had been walking with the Lord 15 years plus. And so there's a lot that James assumes they already know, and one of the things that he assumes that they already know but he just wants to remind them is their true status before God as a sinner. And so in verse 2 I want to just deal with half of verse 2 today because it is so profound. We need to stop. We need to think about it, meditate on it, camp on it, apply it to our life and consider these sobering words. As James is cautioning people not to be teachers in verse two, he says for or because or here's a reason that is universally true. If you're a Christian and it's foundational and the statement is this in verse two for we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. Uh, That statement to me always causes me to pause because it is so profound. For we all stumble in many ways. So let's go ahead and look at just that phrase uh, I put there uh, for your sermon title, Stumbling Toward Glory. And I'm using James' terminology here. Every Christian knows, based on God's Word and His promises, that we are headed for glory, aren't we? Amen. That is the good news. We are headed for glory. That is the promise of God. That is the guarantee. It won't come in this life, but it will come definitely in the next life. And it's an eternal glory. It is a perfection. It is motive for living day to day. That is the great hope of the Christian. It's all made possible because of the glorious work of Jesus Christ and His person. He is beautiful indeed, as our song said and he's the one that makes that possible and as we're headed to glory we have to live this life and this life is a battle isn't it day-to-day battle in many ways and james reminds us of the battle as we're headed towards glory and one of the reminders here he specifically wants to highlight has to do with us personally as christians but the reality is that we all stumble in many ways in this life we as christians all stumble and the word stumble is synonymous with sin so you could literally read it that way. He's talking about Christians, by the way. That's his audience. We Christians sin. And it's present tense. We're going to talk about that verb. We Christians continue to sin in our life in many ways. Think about that. You know what this is? This is our bio- If you're a Christian this morning, this is your biography. This is my biography. I don't know if you've thought about that. This is who you are. This is who I am. We as Christians continue to sin in many ways. And I want to deal with just this phrase uh, specifically because it is an important truth that it is true about us. The good news is this isn't all that's true about us as Christians. Because another corollary truth that balances that and gives us the full picture is when we got saved, God gave us the Spirit of God to live inside of us, right? God also forgave us all of our sins when we got saved. And we have the Spirit of God living inside of us that gives us power to fight sin, resist sin, and even overcome sin many times. So that's the full picture of a Christian, as we have been saved, and yet uh, there's this hangover from our unsaved life, and that is the issue of sin that continues to nag at us. So I, I'm fully aware of the balance to this truth but today i want to talk about this truth even though it's a hard one to think about but it's going to be beneficial for all of us to think about it practically Uh, what are the implications of my life in light of the fact that for we as christians all sin in many ways let's go ahead and look at it i just came up with five truths i want to wrap this uh, specific verse around to make it more practical for us so let's go ahead and look at those flowing right from the text um, james is saying boy you know Teachers are accountable because they use a lot of words and it's easy to sin when you talk a lot. And the reason it's easy to sin is because we're sinful people and we sin all the time in all kinds of different ways. So that's actually the context by which he's using this verse. One of the most prolific ways we sin is with our mouth and with our words. But the truth is more universal than that. We don't just sin with our words. We sin a lot of different ways and he tells us that. So point number one, let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, Truth number one in my own... Actually, this is my autobiography about me according to God. Part one of many parts that are true about me as a Christian. And point number one is that all believers sin. All believers sin. Every Christian today, every Christian in our church, every Christian in the world. You might be thinking, oh, that's, that's pretty basic, Pastor Cliff. I mean, do we really have to spend time on this? This is like a no-brainer. Well, actually, it's not a no-brainer for all Christians. I have been surprised to find out uh, over time, over a few couple of decades here, that there are Christians who have different beliefs about this, even today. But the point is, all believers sin, and we know that from verse 2 where he says, for we all, he's talking about all of us Christians. He even includes himself as an apostle and the head of the Jerusalem church in that. We all, including me, James, the half-brother of Jesus, James, the head of the Jerusalem church, James, the one that is writing to you authoritatively with binding words from God, I am not perfect, I'm just a vessel, I'm just an apostle, I'm just a mouthpiece, Fallen, sinful mouthpiece for God. God is the one who speaks perfectly and does all things perfectly. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. We humans, sons and daughters of Adam, we all sin. No one is exempt. All of us. Uh, this, is infirm- this is affirmed all throughout the Bible. Uh, I put there First Kings eight forty six. That's Solomon about one thousand B C. dedicating the temple. It just says a great prayer. The entire chapter, chapter 8, is a prayer to God by King Solomon, speaking prophetically as a prophet of God. And in there, again, like a parenthetical statement, uh, Solomon speaks on behalf of the Holy Spirit, saying there is no one who does not sin. It's a universal reality. All believers sin. There's a great verse in Ecclesiastes. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. Ecclesiastes 7.12, also probably written by Solomon, same time. Wisest man in the world at the time, inspired by the Spirit of God. He said, indeed, here is the truth. Listen carefully. This applies to everyone. It is authoritative. It came from God. Indeed, there is not a righteous person on earth who continually does good and never sins. Not one. And he's including believers in there. So that's part of my autobiography. Wow. I'm a sinner. I sin. It's part of who I am. How do I deal with that as a Christian? Well, we need to deal with it. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, When was the last time you sinned? Don't say it out loud. I know the Bible says confess your sins to one another, but I want you to think in your mind. When was the last time you sinned? Was it this morning? Maybe it was on the way to church. Maybe Maybe it was on the church campus. Maybe it was at the breakfast table with the family. Or when you tried to get your 14 kids in the car. That's always a trial. Or on the freeway when you're driving here and somebody else made you sin. Because they're lousy driving. That happens. Um, maybe you're seriously reflecting and you can't think about sin. Well, I didn't sin today. I haven't sinned today. Liar! That's a sin right there. Or maybe you think back, okay, the sin's this week. Yeah, I did sin. I sinned at work. I sinned at home. I sinned... You know, the challenge to that is when we say, when we evaluate our own sins, usually we're thinking about actions. I did this. I acted this way. When in reality, we're probably more guilty of sin in our words and what we said. And a lot of times we say sinful things we're not even conscious of. And even more so, our sinful thoughts, because we have more thoughts than we have words. We have more words than we have actions. So we're even more guilty in our thought life. In our speaking life than in our actions. So I can almost guarantee every single person in here committed a sin this last week. And that is consistent with the truth of James. We all sin. So if you can pinpoint a sin that happened recently in your life, here's another sobering truth that comes right out of Scripture. That sin you committed, it warranted the death penalty. That sin, the most recent sin that I committed, it deserved the death penalty, literally. Some Christians will ask, so does the Bible, what does the Bible say about the death penalty? Uh, God believes in the death penalty. He implemented it. The wages of sin is death. And primarily the death that God is talking about there, in addition to physical death, is eternal death, sep- spiritual death, separation from God, punishment in hell. Every sin I commit deserves the death penalty. So maybe. Pastor Cliff should have died 14 times over this week with the death penalty. But I'm a Christian. I put my faith in Jesus Christ, the God-man who lived a perfect life and willingly died on the cross as a substitute for sin and got executed by sinners. But also, God the Father poured out His wrath on Jesus as my substitute. And even though I deserve to die 14 times this week, Jesus already died for me. The death penalty Requirement was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Isn't that good news? That is the gospel. Jesus died for me as a sinner. It's an awesome truth. And that is the great hope of the Christian. But the point is all believers sin. Like I said, even in evangelical and different Christian circles, not all evangelicals believe that truth. They actually believe there are some Christians who don't sin. And there are different denominations of Protestant uh, theology in particular from the Wesleyan tradition and the Nazarene tradition uh, where uh, unapologetically they would say that it is possible for any Christian who is obedient enough and has enough uh, willpower to reach a place of what is called a perfect love or perfect obedience in your life where you could go months, years without ever sinning. There are professing Christians who believe that. And I would say that is not consistent with the Bible. At all, all believers sin. Point number two: Not only do all believers sin, which includes uh, me and you, believers are vulnerable in every area of life. Every single one of us is vulnerable or susceptible in every area of life, and I mean susceptible to any sin you can possibly think of. Some Christians think, well, I, I think about a friend I had in college. I was a new believer. And I don't know how long he'd been. He grew up in a Christian home, but we were we were pretty good friends. And I was a new believer, but he was uh, newly energized in his faith. And we were both decided we wanted to go to seminary. And he just told me one day uh, that he had overcome lust. He's an 18-year-old single guy, and I'm like, Yeah, right. And he sincerely believed that I have overcome lust. I said, No, you haven't. You never will <laughs> overcome lust. So we had this interesting debate. And about 20 years later, he agreed with me. You know what? You were right, uh, but that's the danger is is being naive. But the point was, he thought he he acknowledged he was a sinner in other areas, but oh, this area isn't a susceptible area for me. I'm not weak in this area. I, I don't get tempted in this area. And if you ever find yourself as a Christian saying, "I don't get tempted in that area," then the red flag should go up. And that's where the Apostle Paul says, "Whoa, oh, take heed lest you fall," because we are so weak. We walk with Feet of play and the devil is so uh, deceptive and dangerous and skilled and supernatural. And the sin that is in us is so real. No Christian should ever be thinking that way that, oh, I'm not vulnerable or susceptible in that certain area. I only sin in these areas. I sin in only the acceptable, respectable areas of sin. The dignified areas of sin. Not true. Every Christian is vulnerable in every area of life. And James uh, affirms that when he says, we, Christians... Continue to stumble. Continue to sin in many ways. And he's talking about different kinds of ways that we are tempted to sin. Different kinds of sin. Well, that's when I start thinking about maybe Christians that I admire, godly men and women. Well, I can't imagine them sinning. Or I can't imagine them sinning in this way or in this area. And that's how naive we are. We don't live with them. We don't know what their thoughts are. Only God does. And the Bible verse is true. We all sin in many ways. Think of some of the great saints of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. These incredibly godly believers that walked before us. This great cloud of witnesses. These amazing saints of godliness and righteousness who were huge, massive pillars made of marble in our past that we put on pedestals and we esteem. Say, wow, I wish I was like... I wish I could be as godly as Noah or Abraham or Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, David. Uh oh. Really? I want you to look at uh, Hebrews chapter eleven real quick. Flip back a book, Hebrews eleven. Just to kind of illustrate this truth from James, believers are vulnerable in every area of life. They sin all kinds of sins. And you think of some of the greatest saints of the Old Testament in the great hall of faith in in Hebrews chapter eleven. Every one of these believers is commended for their exemplary faith. Their belief in God. They were all saved. They knew God personally. They were models of faith. And in uh, Hebrews 11 starting verse 7 talks about Noah. Noah, great man of faith. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 9, hold your finger in Hebrews chapter 11. Actually go to Genesis 6 and then we'll flip over to Genesis 9 and we'll just here's a quick portrait, a little vignette about Noah. Genesis 6, verse 8 says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord in a time when the entire world was just covered with despicable sin, and that's why God destroyed the world with a flood. Sin was so rampant it grieved God's heart in verse 6, but then it contrasted with Noah, who loved God, knew God, was a believer, his sins were forgiven. God showered favor down upon Noah, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh, verse 9 says, these are the records of the generation of Noah. Get this phrase in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man. You know what that means? Noah was saved. It does not mean he was perfect. He was saved. He was loved by God. He was righteous in his status before God. God looked down from heaven and considered Noah totally forgiven of all of his sins because of the work of Jesus Christ that would be done 2,500 years later on behalf of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. That means he knew God. He was saved by faith. He had a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. It goes on to say that he was blameless in his time. Literally, it means he was a man of integrity. That does not mean he was perfect or sinless because he wasn't. He loved God. God loved him. He was in the family of God. He was a believer. He walked with God. He's 600 years old at the time. That's a long walk of sanctification. Then there's the flood. The flood lasts a year. He gets off the ark. God blesses him. Look at chapter 9 now. Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah. He's 601 years old now. God gives him the rainbow, a new covenant. Blesses his kids. They start populating the earth. Then a few years go by. We don't know how many, but look at uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Then Noah, the righteous man, the man of integrity, the man who loved God, the man who was a believer, the man who had all the sins forgiven, the man who was a model for us in faith. Look what happened to this believing man. Verse 20. Then Noah began farming and he planted a vineyard and he's growing grapes. And what do you do with grapes? Well, you step on and you make wine and that's what he's going to do. And he did make some wine. And verse 21 says, Noah drank too much of the wine. He drank of the wine and became drunk. He became intoxicated, became drunk, and literally passed out. That is the sin of drunkenness. This is Noah the believer. Maybe he didn't even think he was susceptible to drunkenness. We don't know. Fact fact, the matter is, God lets the whole world and all of history know that Noah, even though he was a righteous man, he was susceptible to sin, and here he was susceptible to drunkenness. It was horrific. There was a consequence for it. His family was affected by it. He reaped those negative consequences and at the same time God forgave Noah for that sin. Okay, go back to Hebrews 11 and then we'll go back to James. So there's Noah. He was susceptible for at least drunkenness. then uh, in Hebrews 11 verse 8, you got Abraham who's a godly man. He was susceptible to all kinds of sin, sexual immorality. Uh, he married more than one woman, which he shouldn't have done. He lied on several occasions, which he should not have done. This is all as a believer times he didn't trust God. He made some horrible decisions. Then there's verse 11. Sarah, she committed sin as a believer. She gave her mistress to her husband. That's sexual immorality. That violated one of the Ten Commandments. That was wrong. That undermined what God was trying to do. There were negative consequences for that, yet she was a believer. Uh, Look at verse 18. Isaac, he was a righteous man. He was a patriarch. He was a saint. He was forgiven by God. And yet he made some horrible sins. He was a, a lousy dad at times and showed favoritism, which you're not supposed to do as a parent. He exasperated his kids, at least one of them. That was sinful. He got angry illegitimately and unrighteously. We know that from the Genesis account. So those are some of his sins that we see. Then look at verse 20. Jacob, who became Israel, one of the greatest patriarchs. Man of God, man of faith. Jacob had all kinds of sins. He was a deceiver. His name Jacob means deceiver. Lied to his parents, lied to his brother, tricked his brother. On and on it goes. Showed favoritism among his, bro- his sons. So his life was filled with sin. All kinds of different sin. He was a polygamist and had at least four different wives. That was a violation of the Ten Commandments. Sinner. Sinner saving by grace, or saved by grace. Jacob the sinner. Then there's Moses, the ex-murderer. Killed somebody in cold blood. Then, as a believer, a mature believer, almost 100, and who knows, 20 years old, ready to go into the promised land, as he's leading the Jews. And then uh, he's been pretty good, obeying God most of the way. And then he gets there, he gets impatient with the people, and then he sins against God in front of the entire congregation of all those Jews, and loses his cool, gets angry, and God gave him a consequence. Okay, Moses, just because you did that, you are not going in the promised land. That was Moses getting angry. Getting violent in front of everybody. Sin. Look at verse 31. Rahab. She got saved by God, and yet scripture still calls her Rahab the harlot. Prostitute. Verse 32. There's Gideon. He was a righteous man. He was saved. He was a believer. He had all kinds of wives. That's violating the Ten Commandments, sexual immorality, other things that he did sinful. Samson. Considered a righteous man, a believer. Man, that is mind boggling. If you read the story on Samson, it's like sin after sin after sin after sin. This guy, wow, he was like this. Yet he was a righteous man, a man of faith, a man who loved God, a man forgiven by God, and yet he was a sinner. And he sinned in many different ways. Uh, Then there's David, same thing. His life is filled with all kinds of compromises, a believer, stupid things he did, sin, not trusting God, committing sexual immorality, being a lousy dad at times. Yet he loved God, and God loved him. So before we look down our nose and say, yeah, all those terrible sinners, you know what, if our name was in the Bible, it would be the same thing. Put your name in there. Yeah, look at Cliff. Boy, look at all the things he did. Can you believe it? And, he, and God led him into heaven. Can you believe that? No, that's we're all in the same boat. We all sin. And all of us are vulnerable in every area of life with respect to sin. And we need to be on guard as a result. Let's go to point number three. All believers sin. Believers are all vulnerable in every area of life, just like these great saints. And then point number three. Believers will struggle with sin their whole life. Boy, this this reality really frustrated me as a newer, younger Christian. Because I remember when I got saved, and it was such a radical salvation when I was in college. I think I went like three months without sinning, according to me at the time. Then I looked back and said, no, actually, I didn't go three months without sinning. But I actually believed early on. Actually, my, my view of sanctification and sin with the believer has changed over the last 25 years since I believed uh, since I've been a Christian. As a matter of fact, the older I get, the more my view of personal sanctification continues to be modified. Because when I was a new believer at age 19, I had an overly idealistic view of myself and how I was going to overcome sin the older I got and the longer I was a Christian. Man, I can't wait till I'm uh, 37 when I've conquered sin. And then I turned 37 and I was like, wow, that didn't happen. Okay, I can't wait till I'm 45 and I overcome all of the sin in my life. And if you ask my wife, I don't think that's happened yet. Or my kids. And literally, that has, God has used that with the Holy Spirit and biblical truth and wiser saints to modify my position of personal sanctification to bring it more into conformity with reality. And like I said, there are people, there are Christians who believe you can reach perfection in this life. Sinlessness. That is not true. Early on, I believed not in total sinlessness, but I did believe that as time went on, I would get better. That's what I believed. 25 years later, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that as time goes on, I'm going to get better. What I do believe now, that I think is consistent with Scripture, as I get older as a Christian, I think spiritual, true spiritual maturity with respect to sanctification is that not that I get better, but I become more conscientious and sensitive to sin. The reality of it in my life, my disgust and hatred for it, my overwhelming sense of guilt regarding it, and my greater and greater increasing desire to be set free from it. That, that's my latest version of personal sanctification in my life. In combination with those other great truths that the Spirit of God is working in me while I'm a Christian, and I think He is the one that is responsible for making me more and more sensitive to my own sin. So this greater sensitivity, this greater awareness, this greater heinousness for my own personal sin is not a bad thing. If you're, I've counseled many people, Christians, very frustrated, telling me they feel guilt and they think that being guilt, feeling guilty is bad. Did you know that feeling guilty is not always bad? Guilt is a gift from God. Guilt is a, a sign. It's a warning sign. Uh, uh, uh. Maybe God is trying to tell you something that is the Spirit of God convicting you about a sin. Guilt is not bad. You need to attend to your guilt and see what God is showing you regarding why you're feeling guilty. Inform your conscience. Maybe you are in violation against God's will. Maybe you are in sin. So that's what guilt does. So on point number three, believers will struggle with sin their whole life. This is in the text from James. Very specifically in the Greek text. For we all stumble. And the verb stumble or sin, is it is present indicative it just means it is an ongoing continuous reality it is a pattern of life the reality that we'll have to contend with sin and that's why i said earlier for we all as christians continue to stumble i like the fact by the way and i think james was specific when he used the the metaphor of stumble and not fall because that's what we do as Christians, don't we? We stumble, we get back up, we stumble. We're going the right direction, right? We want to please God, we, we're going towards glory, God is going to ensure that because of, He saved us, He's filled us with the Spirit, and He is moving us in the right direction. We, Christians, even though we sin, we are not going the wrong direction. This is where unbelievers are going that way. That is sin, death, hell. But we as Christians, we are going towards Christ, heaven, glory. And God is going to ensure that we get there. That is the perseverance of the saints that God ensures by His great glorious promise. But we stumble to get there. Hence, stumbling toward glory. We're going the right direction. It's the direction of our life is the right direction. But we stumble on the way. And this is kind of the graph of the Christian life. Oops, we mess up. And oop, and then sometimes, oh, we have a plateau. And boop, we stumble. and But we're going the right direction. So it's going to be a part of our life. Our entire life. And when I talk to some people, particularly newer Christians, they get really frustrated. I remember a very good friend of mine, he was younger than me, and I was mentoring and discipling him. This was years ago. And he came in and he just told me, man, I've been saved seven years and I'm still battling and struggling in sin. And I'm still battling some of the same sins that I sinned when I was an unbeliever. It's driving me crazy. Is there something wrong with me? And he was questioning salvation. I said, no, you don't need to question your salvation. I think you're truly born again. And you know what? I think it's good that you have this overwhelming sense of guilt about these sins in your life. He couldn't believe that. He said, "You're crazy. What are you talking about?" I said, "Because when you sinned these sins before you became a Christian, what'd you think about it? "Oh, I like to do it." Oh, now what do you feel about it? I hate it. See? That's the key. You have a righteousness of God about you now. You have determined that this sin is wrong. It is evil. It is wicked. You have the very mindset of God. That is awesome. You are in tune with the Spirit of God living in you. And we talked about that. This was transforming for his thinking about his personal view of sanctification. And I told him, and I remember the last two sentences we had. And I said, you know what, brother? You may never perfectly overcome this sin in your life. And he said, oh, thanks a lot. How horrible is that? Wow, that's really encouraging. How depressing. I said, yeah, it is depressing. But doesn't this make you long for heaven more doesn't this make you long for Jesus more I said yeah i guess it does so he appreciated that so believers will struggle with sin their whole life we stumble and we get up we stumble and we get up we stumble and we get up that's the christian life we don't ever arrive in this life that's why i put philippians 3:13 the apostle paul at the peak of his apostolic ministry he was the man and he was very disciplined I even think about Paul. Now, what kind of sins could possibly have committed? I can't even imagine. I'm not even going to try to guess. But he did. He was a sinner. He stumbled. And yet Paul, at the peak of his apostolic ministry, who at times would examine his own conscience and and felt he was clean before God, said, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Laid hold of what? Perfection resurrection, perfect status before God. Even Paul knew that about himself. I haven't arrived yet. I'm not there yet. None of us have arrived yet. And the ongoing continual re- reality for all of us is Galatians 5.17. The lust or the flesh lusts against the spirit that lives in us. And the spirit of God that lives in us lusts against the flesh that still remains with us. The re- unredeemed part of who we are still. We are not fully redeemed yet. So Salvation happens in three aspects in the Christian life first is when you get saved you believe in the gospel God saves you and that's called justification he declares you forgiven you don't become perfect that day experientially but he God looks down and declares you perfect you are forgiven you believed in my gospel Jesus died for you he's your substitute that is justification it is a legal invisible instantaneous one-time transaction that happens the moment you believe in the gospel boom you were justified You are placed into the family of God. God slammed down the gavel and said, you are not only not guilty, you are innocent. As innocent as the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Himself. That's justification. Then the rest of our life as Christians, there is sanctification. Where God is working in our life on a regular basis through the power of the Holy Spirit, through Scripture, the circumstances of life, the conviction of other believers to grow us, to refine us, to enable us to see our sin to hate sin more and more, to resist it more and more. But we're still susceptible to every conceivable sin. I, I know this from a ministerial point of view because the older I get, the more and more pastors I see, hear of, and know fall prey to all kinds of sins, whether it's uh, adultery, uh, the sin of pride, self-will. They're being disqualified from the pastorate. Uh, that just happens more and more. And these are genuine believers who love God. can't ever think that we have arrived. That's dangerous. So there's justification, the moment you're saved. Declared totally clean by God. Then there's sanctification. That is walking the Christian life until we die or Jesus returns in glory. And then finally, when we die and we go at some point, into the, instantly we go into the presence of God, but at some point there is full glorification. The last phase of salvation. Where God literally redeems or saves or perfects our physical body. That's what remains. The physical body is unredeemed in this life. And the physical body isn't the problem. It is, the, it is what in, is inside the physical body that is the problem, and that is sin that remains in us. Let's go ahead and look at number four. All believers sin. Believers are vulnerable in every area of life. Number three, believers will struggle with sin their whole life. And then number four, all sin is evil, Wicked and an offense to God. God hates sin. He's a holy God. He hates sin. He must punish sin. You mean God must punish every sin I ever commit? Yes, God must punish every sin I ever commit as a Christian. And the good news is He already punished it. God punished every sin I will ever commit when He punished Jesus on the cross because Jesus died as my substitute. And an unbeliever cannot say that because they haven't embraced Jesus Christ yet. So they are still accountable for all of their sins to be punished by God. They have not embraced Jesus as their substitute. They still must face the wrath of God. But even though that my sin has been taken care of and punished by Jesus, God still hates it when I sin. All sin is evil, wicked, and an offense to God. 1 John 5.17 All unrighteousness is sin. All wrongdoing is sin. And like I said, every sin warrants the death penalty. Every sin is hated, despised by God, for He is holy. So again, we don't commit acceptable sins. We don't commit uh, minor sins or dignified sins. We've got to get that out of our mind. All sins are just an absolute total offense to to our God, our Creator, our Savior. That should be a motive for us to not want to sin. So we need to have a right perspective about sin in our own life, starting with us. I do want to answer the question about why do we keep sinning as Christians? Uh, Go to Romans chapter 7. Why, Why do we have this problem? How come we'll never overcome this problem? And Paul's really clear in this. Uh, Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 14. He answers that question for us. Starting at verse 14, he's giving his own autobiography on this issue of his battle with sin. And he's he's talking in the present tense, by the way, about himself. So Paul is saying this was about this was true about himself at the peak of his apostolic ministry. He was an apostle. He was the apostle of the Gentiles. He's a, he was a spokesman for God. He still believed it was true that people could model their Christian life after him because he said that follow me as I am an example of Christ. But he was cognizant of the reality that he had a sin problem even after he got saved. And he tells us the origin of the problem. Uh, Look at verse 14. And you could put your name in here instead of Paul. Wherever Paul says I, you can put your name in there. This is your autobiography and mine if you're a Christian in the present life. For we know, we as Christians know, the laws of God is spiritual. But I, even as a Christian, I am of flesh. There's still unredeemed humanity about me. I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin, the unredeemed part of me until I get to glory. Verse 15. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. When I sin, I don't, I don't understand. It violates my conscience when I knowingly sin. Because for in those times I am, practicing what I, uh, I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Here's the Apostle Paul's predicament. There were times as an apostle he would be doing things that he hated to do. There were things he was doing as sin that he knew was wrong. Does that ever happen to you? Man, that happens to me. I do the very thing I hate. But notice he has the right assessment of it. It is sin. I hate it. God hates sin. His thinking is in sync with God. That is good news. To think like God is good. That is healthy. If you hate your own sin, that's fantastic. Verse 16, but if I do the very thing that I do not wish to do, sin, then I agree with God's law. Ooh, there's another good thing. I agree with God's law. Sin is bad. Sin is bad confessing that the law is good, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. I am the one not And when he says I'm not the one doing it, the redeemed part of me that Jesus saved, the reborn, the regenerated one, is not the one doing the sin, but it's another part of me, it's the unredeemed part. And then you're going, huh? Paul, what are you talking about? You sound schizo. Well, I think he kind of was. Because this is a reality that every Christian has to battle with. There is a redeemed part of me and there's an unredeemed part of me that has to live the Christian life. That's what Paul's talking about. And the redeemed part of me isn't the one that sins, it's the unredeemed part of me, but it's still a part of me. But sin which and there is sin present tense that in dwells me. So if the apostle Paul could say that sin lives in him, every single one of us can say the same thing. We have sin living in us. And for the rest of our life, we have to try to keep that sin down, stomp on it, step on it. Rain it in. Do whatever we can. It's a battle. Uh, Verse 18, look at this. Nothing good dwells in me. That's the unredeemed part of me. So sin lives in me. Nothing good dwells in me. I do things that I hate to do. End of verse 19 says, I practice the very evil I don't want to do. At the end of verse 20, he says, sin dwells in me. That's the second time he said it. He's being emphatic. Verse 21, evil is present in me. Wow. This is true of every Christian. So when your spouse says you're a sinner, you can say, Amen, sister, brother. That is very theologically accurate and astute on your part. You're just like Paul. Verse 23. Sin is in my members. That's the unredeemed part of humanity that will be redeemed in glory. And then he just concludes, man, wretched man that I am. Do you ever feel like that as a Christian? If you do... For the right reason, that is healthy. Again, that is guilt weighing down on you. God is trying to tell you something, Christian. And willpower is not the solution. And human wisdom is not the solution. And medication isn't the solution for your sin. He gives the solution. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Who? Answer 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Jesus, the Savior, He died for me. He died in my place. I am totally forgiven. He's promised me eternal glory. I'm going to be set free from this body someday, this body of death, and live perfectly in glory forever with Him. That is the gospel. That was Paul's hope. That helps me press on just one more day as a sinner in this fallen world. It's the hope of the Christian. But that's why we have the sin problem, because sin literally remains in us. And the Spirit of God also lives in us, hence the battle, hence the tension as Christians. With that, let's go on to number five. Well, a lot of these sobering truths, yet very crystal clear truths stated in Scripture about our own autobiography, our battle with sin, the reality of indwelling sin, that it's ongoing. There are some things we should practically take away from this, and that's in number five. Believers need to examine themselves. See, it starts with yourself, doesn't it? Instead of examining others, examine yourself. And a lot of times, we can't even see our own sin. Most of the time, we're blinded by our own sin. Did you know that? Because sin is deceptive. That's why David says in the psalm there, Psalm 139, he asked God to examine him. God, examine me because there are things I don't see. Examine, expose My unknown sins. So we've got to ask God to expose our unknown sins. So it's examine ourselves, but it's also asking God to examine us. And you know who God uses sometimes to expose our sin? Other people. Uh Uh-oh. Sometimes we don't like that. But those are the agents of exposure that God sovereignly uses at times. Believers need to examine themselves looking for sin. Be sober, level-headed, objective about your sin, who you are, your status. You will never arrive in this life. I will never arrive in this life. And that's why Paul did say, be realistic when you think about yourself. Don't overestimate yourself before God. Romans 12.3 Be sober, as confess sin daily. Jesus said to do that in Matthew chapter 6. Confess sin every single day. This should be an ongoing reality in the life of a Christian. A regular part of your prayer life should be confessing sin. That's First that's John one nine. If we confess our sin, literally, when we confess our sin, and that implies that we should be confessing our sin, present tense, when we continually confess our sin to God as Christian, which is what we're supposed to be doing. It's a discipline of our prayer life. God is faithful. God is righteous. He will forgive all of our sin and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the guilt that goes with it. Isn't that awesome? If you're a believer because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Jesus did. So examine yourself. Be sober, sober as you evaluate yourself, confess your sin daily to God and plead for God's help, not just in the present or what you've done in the past, but also God to help you in the future preventatively. God, keep me from the snares and the wiles of the devil and my own sin and my own weaknesses, my own temptations. God, help me bring people into my life to help me. Those are great reminders. With that, I'll give you a couple more. In light of this truth and the battle of sin. And practice it today. In light of these truths about ourselves, remain humble. We need to remain humble about ourselves. Because we're sinful. Uh, Another one, continue to forgive others. In light of your sinful tendencies and my sinful tendencies. That's what Colossians says. Forgive others because Jesus has forgiven you. So remain humble. Keep forgiving others. Keep forgiving others. Boy, that's great. You start applying that in your family life. Apply that to your spouse. Apply that to your kids. Apply that to your difficult co Apply that to the members in your church as you rub shoulders with one another. The more you rub shoulders with one another, the easier it is to have a lack of patience with one another. Continue to be a forgiving Christian, in light of your own sin. Uh, Another one, maintain accountability. I'm convinced that you can't overcome or battle sin, especially difficult areas where you're trapped in your life without accountability in your life. That's why the scriptures say it is not good for man to be alone, and that's before sin entered the world. Now that sin enters the world, we need accountability in our life. Every one of us does. So we need accountability to help us with our sin. Uh, Another one, I already said this, ask God to search you. Plead with Him daily. God, search me and my sin. And then Finally, most importantly, continue to depend upon Jesus Christ regarding the sin in your life and your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, and also pray to the Holy Spirit. Talk to the Holy Spirit. Spirit, thank you for living in me. Continue to convict me and teach me and lead me, enlighten me, protect me. Because that is the job of the Holy Spirit of God. Illuminate my mind. Give me self restraint, give me supernatural. Self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, to resist sin and temptation. That should be a daily ongoing prayer in our life. If if the sinful temptations are ongoing, then how much more should our our prayers and dependence upon God be ongoing every single day? And we thank God that God has provided a solution to the problem of sin in His glorious Son, Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, whom we have the privilege of worshiping today and even communing with. And let's go to Him in thankfulness as we pray in light of these truths. Father, we do thank You for this day and thank You for Your hand upon our local fellowship, Grace Bible Fellowship, as You have Your hand on every church around the world. What a glorious thing, Your your beautiful body, the body of Christ. Thank You for the Word of God. Thank You for James and the truth that's in it that we can study together, learn basic and very important truths that hit home of where we're living, God, in life, and that's we're sinful. And we will continue to battle sin in this life. God, we need Your help. Thank You for the solution in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your perfect life. Thank You for never catering to or caving into sin. Thank You for resisting it 100% of the time because You are the God-man. Thank You for willingly dying on the cross and being punished by the Father to absorb our sin and also the punishment that was due our sin. Thank You for dying in our place. Lord Jesus, thank You for conquering sin by raising from the dead. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your ongoing ministry as the High Priest in Heaven, praying for us, interceding for us, and helping us. And also thank You for Your Holy Spirit who does the same thing. God, give us renewed strength and conviction about the sin in our life. Give us a renewed hatred for sin as well. And renew the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we might live in a way that pleases You. We commit all these things to You in Christ's name. Amen.